You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. The text that was chosen for this worship service is Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 that James just read to us. And I want to set the context for the prophet Malachi's word. Those strong words came some 400 years before the birth of Christ. Malachi ends, as you see, the Old Testament, and there will then be 400 years of silence. No prophet speaking, no word of God. In a way, salvation history descends to the manger. We so often think in the light of Philippians 2, 1 through 11, of Jesus Christ descending into the incarnate form and taking his life uh, as our life and being made as man. But God himself, the triune God, was fully vested in this descent. And salvation history descends as well to the manger. We kind of know Israel's history pretty well, beginning with Abraham and his call in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah. And from Abraham and Sarah, a great nation is made. The patriarchs, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph. And then 400 years of bondage in Egypt. Famine drove the Israelites to Egypt. 400 years and then Moses called of God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And that first exodus was powerful. Ten plagues, the introduction of the Passover lamb, the crossing of the Red Sea, Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system. The first exodus, in one sense, is kind of glorious. It's powerful. From the exodus and from Abraham's uh, initial uh, impact, we realize that there's a, a history of development to, uh, through Deborah and Joshua and Deborah and Gideon, all the way to Ruth and then David. And the institution of, through Saul and then David and then Solomon, of a royal line. A temple is built. And that's probably the peak of Israel's history. David and Solomon. But from there, there's a line of kings. The kingdom is split in two, the kingdom in the north, the kingdom in the south, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And from there, most of us kind of lose interest in tracking with those kings. But there's 16 prophets. We have Elijah and Elisha that keep Israel on track through that time. And then these 16 prophets, and on this side of the Babylonian captivity, Joel and Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. Hard to keep them all straight. Their message was very similar. Get back to the covenant God. Return to him. Obey his word. And embedded in their message was the story of the coming of the Messiah. But it was difficult to understand that message and to put it all together. 
Well, God judged his people and sent them into exile, into Babylonian captivity, for 70 years. And the prophets during that time, Habakkuk, Daniel, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and finally Malachi. Nehemiah and Ezra enter into the picture around that time as well. The first exodus was powerful, but after that 70-year captivity, Israel limped back to Israel. They were like the refugees, like the caravan. They came back as a beleaguered people. And greatly disappointed in coming back to rubble, to a city that the walls were broken and needed to be rebuilt. A desperate time. And they were encouraged, greatly encouraged, by uh, the prophets. Haggai challenged them to rebuild the temple. Zechariah renewed their identity through both vision and message. The Esther scroll lets us know that Israel was hanging on by a bare thread, but God was powerful to bring them back. What's interesting here is the descent of a people. When the second temple was made, the people actually cried because there were those there that remembered the first temple and the humiliation of the people. There's no pride of race here, no pride of ethnic origin. A people that are beleaguered and constantly hearing the word of the prophets to come back to their God and to be obedient. A pastor that has helped me considerably over the years is uh, Eugene Peterson. And when Eugene Peterson, Eugene and Jan were told that they were going to have a grandson, a grandchild, they didn't know it was going to be a grandson at that initial phone call from Eric, their son, who was in seminary at the time. And the next day, Eugene and Jan got in the car and drove two hours to Princeton Seminary to celebrate with Eric and, uh, and his wife. And Eugene, on the way, said, you know, I'm just not very excited. We've had three kids. Life has been good. But somehow, I'm not feeling it. And they spent the night with, uh, uh, with Eric and Lynn, and they got back in the car, and he said, I still feel completely flat about this. What's wrong with me? And Jan said, well, you've never been pregnant. And, uh, well, Eugene said, I can't do a whole lot about that. And she said, build a cradle. And that week, he went to a furniture store, picked out some hardwood from Honduras, and he, he went to the library and he found uh, a hooded colonial cradle and he started working uh, on a cradle over the months building this cradle. And as he built that cradle, he got pregnant, increasingly excited about the coming of this grandchild. Well, in some sense, God built a cradle. He brought the people of God all the way down, and then he reinstituted the temple, reinstituted the sacrifices, 
reinstituted the law. He brought it all back, priesthood and all, from years of captivity. He built a cradle. Salvation history is something of that cradle, even as the manger held the incarnate one. It's not just that the manger comes out of nowhere. There has been this long development of God's longing and God's long suffering to bring about this incarnate one. And so Malachi speaks, and he speaks powerfully. Uh, and in a way, you know, the third chapter and the first four verses are something of the DNA, the heart of the book. Uh, if you read Malachi, and it doesn't take you long to read, it's a court case. God is bringing a case against his people. And it sounds like a divorce trial. It's about honor. It's about respect. It's about reconciliation. And it begins, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved me? And it's that exchange that runs right through this uh, prophetic letter where God is saying, I've done this. And they're saying, it's no big deal. There's nothing worse than having an argument with somebody that says, well, there's nothing wrong here. There's nothing between us. Even though there's a desperate situation of conflict between you. Malachi uh, is, it really says nothing except the word of the Lord. There's very little at all of Malachi here. But what he speaks of is the bad faith of the leaders, of the priests. And he speaks of the betrayed relationships. And Malachi puts a finger on the fact that uh, their communion with God is reflected in their fidelity to each other. And the divorces within Israel and the marrying into, uh, into spouses that bowed to foreign gods, that was a reflection of their faithfulness and lack of fidelity, the lack of faithfulness to Yahweh. Bad faith, betrayed relationships, broken promises. And then you read, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And we immediately, rightly so, link that to John the Baptist and John the Baptist coming. And then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then immediately, but who can endure the day of his coming? You've heard Handel's Messiah. And you know, Handel did a wonderful service to the church by bringing these Old Testament texts and prophecies to the fore at our season of Advent so that they could be uh, sung and remembered and that history, salvation history could be put together. But here in Malachi 3, John the Baptist comes and the very next thing is the final judgment. It's like there's one mountain of God's revelation and God's fulfillment when there's really twin peaks. John the Baptist comes, 
Jesus Christ comes in all humility, and that's not what's described here in Malachi. But then Jesus comes, and it's fearsome. The tenor sings in the Messiah, who can bear the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he comes? And that goes on for four minutes. Ten times that question. Who can abide the day of his coming? And it's as if, you know, how could you preach this text to a group of people and not be concerned in the light of the spoken word that the Holy Spirit may be convicting someone who has been like the Israelites? Bad faith, betrayed relationships, broken promises. God, you can take You can take your love, and that's fine. That's good for me. I can be indifferent to it. I can be somewhat casual to it. And that's exactly what God is getting at in this prophecy through Malachi. You're stiff-arming me. You're giving me the cold shoulder. You're putting me off. You're setting up a date sometime in the future. Now is the time. Because who can abide the day of his coming? On November 3rd, in Kalispell, Montana, the memorial service for Eugene Peterson was conducted by Eric Peterson, his son, who's a pastor. Uh, I think 85, something like that full life. Some of you may know him through the message, through that paraphrased translation of the Bible. Uh, I know him as a pastor who put words to the kind of experience that I thought was biblical, and so very grateful for that. There were two objects in that memorial service. There was the cradle that Eugene had built. It was there up front. And there was the coffin that Eric had built, his son. Eric had followed his dad in woodworking as a avocation. Two objects. And as Eric explained, his text was uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And Eric spoke about how his dad really embodied the life of faith and that everything about faith in Christ could be embodied in life, in the integration of the whole of life. And he went on to compare the cradle and the coffin. The cradle symbolized life. The coffin symbolized death. The cradle was open. The casket closed. The cradle stood for promise. The coffin for completion. The cradle signified a glorious beginning. 
the coffin, a glorious end. Between the cradle and the coffin, which puts us right with the Malachi passage between John the Baptist and that refiner's fire judgment that the prophet prophesied. What's between there? What's between the cradle and the judgment? The cross of Jesus Christ. A humility on God's part that we never could have imagined. That's why John the Baptist struggled with, are you really the one? Because this isn't how we envisioned it. We envisioned it something much more powerful, much more fearsome. But you show up in all humility, bringing about justice and light in the darkness. We can't really read this passage without coming to some form of conviction about who Christ is. And he is either all that we confess as Christians, or he's not. Malachi brings us into Advent as a Advent warning. Take notice. Sit up. God means business. And he's done everything in his power and everything in his humility to make himself real to us. So between the cradle and the coffin is the cross and the resurrection. And as Eric pointed out in the memorial service, Eugene is not in that box. But because of the power of the resurrection, he is in the presence of God. May Jesus Christ be praised this Christmas, this Advent, in your life and mine. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.